Morning, everyone. Does, uh, does anyone know who uh, this is? Yeah. Katie Piper. Thank you, Catherine. Katie Piper has uh, become quite well known as a result of a Channel 4 documentary based on her story that was first shown in October 2009 called uh, Katie, My Beautiful Face. And then more recently, during March and April of this year, a four-part series was screened called Katie, My Beautiful Friends. And Katie Piper is 27 and was a model and a TV presenter until March 2008, whenever she was the victim of a vicious attack that was arranged by her ex-boyfriend, where sulfuric acid was thrown at her face, which she swallowed in part. And as a result, she was placed in an induced coma for 12 days. Her weight dropped to 38 kilograms, and she went through a total of 40 surgical operations to treat her injuries. And in 2009, she took part in a documentary about her experience. And one of the key reasons for telling her story and subsequently the story of her friends was to highlight and challenge the tendency that we have to judge people by their appearance. And here's a quote from Katie. We live in a pressured society to look a certain way, to have certain material possessions. What I lost was the one thing many people couldn't live without. All the kinds of magazines and things we see follow and aspire to, they're really based on what we look like on the outside. My life is everyone's worst nightmare. And that's true, isn't it? If we're really honest, it's true. Because we do live in a world where human judgments are often based, at least originally in first impressions, do tend to count on outward appearances. And everything from cosmetics to cars are sold on the basis that we judge each other primarily on the basis of physical looks. Image really is everything. And Katie Piper's story reminds us and forces us, or at least it should, to take a step back and to reflect, how do we define people? Honestly, how do we determine a person's worth? Otherwise, we are in grave danger of living superficial lives in a superficial world. And this morning, as we continue our Essential Word series, we reach the story of David And it's a story that spans 42 chapters of the Bible. Now, I'm not going to attempt to cover all 42 this morning, so don't panic. But of all that we read about David, and David's name appears 800 times in the Old Testament and 50 plus times in the New, but of all that we read about David, surely the most arresting sentence and quite possibly the most significant sentence is this. Human beings look on the outward appearance But the Lord looks on the heart. Do you know, you all look great this morning. Honestly. And there's no exceptions to that. You all look great this morning. But do you know what the core issue is? In so many ways. How does your heart look today? How does your heart look? Because this morning, that's what God sees. Not only sees it, but he knows it. And that's what's really important 
That's what really matters. And actually, it's that that defines each one of us sitting in this church this morning. We live in a society that spends an incredible amount of time, money and effort focusing on how we look externally and sadly less and less on how we look internally. And it's affecting us. And it's catching up with us. We've become obsessed with appearance at the expense of attention to inner beauty. And yet which lasts? One's temporary, the other's permanent. One has no bearing on eternal destiny, the other determines it. Gravity, rust, and the winds of time eventually alter the surface of everything. External beauty withers, youth passes, health goes, fame fades, and wealth won't save us from dying even if we are on today's rich list. And so as we begin David's story, let me ask you a question. What's more important to you in practice? What is it that actually dictates lots of your life choices? Is it the state of in here? Or is it the way you look? By the way, I'm not saying that how you look is unimportant. All I'm asking you to consider is which is more important in reality. Your image or your character. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to 1 Samuel 16. It's page 287. I'm going to cover a lot this morning. In fact, that's maybe all I need to say. In some ways, that's as much as I am going to say about that issue. Uh, maybe that's all you need to take away. But in the first verse of 1 Samuel 16, you discover that God has rejected Israel's first king. Saul had been anointed by Samuel. And this is really hard to understand in many ways. God had anointed Saul as king via Samuel and empowered him by his Holy Spirit, according to 1 Samuel 10.10. But unfortunately, in a rather familiar tale, Saul is quickly corrupted by power. And as the saying goes, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And Saul had made some bad choices in a position of power. He rejected the word of the Lord. That was probably the worst choice he ever made. And therefore, as a result of rejecting the word of the Lord, Saul is rejected as king by God. And therefore, his days are numbered. And so Samuel, at the beginning of chapter 16, is sent by God to discover the identity of the new king, the new chosen king of Israel. Turns out he's one of Jesse's sons, one of the eight. But after seeing seven of them, and some of them really did look impressive, I mean outwardly looked impressive, particularly the first one, Eliab. But after seeing seven of them, Samuel announces, listen, none of these ones, none of them have been chosen. And last week, you'll remember if you were here in the evening, that Saul stood, it says, head and shoulders above everybody else and was a Brad Pitt stroke George Clooney lookalike. Now that latter part isn't exactly in the text, but it does say, it does say that he was handsome. And I'm only trying to paint a picture, plus I'm just illustrating how influential outward appearance really is in our thinking. And the point is, Saul looked the part. Physically, he looked the part. Outward appearance, impressive. But here and now, as Samuel stands looking at the potential candidates for the next in line to the throne, God says, do not consider his appearance or his height. 
The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Samuel then asks Jesse, listen, have you any more sons? And it turns out there is one more, the youngest, who's out looking for sheep. And Samuel sends for him. And when he arrives and Samuel looks at him, guess what? He's a Brad Pitt lookalike. Because look at verse 12. He was glowing with health, had a fine appearance, and had handsome features. Which kind of takes you by surprise. And God says to Samuel, this is him. This is the one. And therefore he anoints him. And the only conclusion that we can discern from this text, given what God has said about appearance, is that God doesn't actually look on outward appearances. The only thing that we can discern from this text is that David's heart was in the right place. That David's heart was in the right state. And if you look at Acts 13, 22, it's on the screen, we discover that was the case. That this was someone who was a man after God's own heart. And so Samuel anoints David. And it also says he is empowered by the Spirit of God. But it's actually a whole bunch of years until his destiny is fulfilled and he actually becomes king. And so at this point in the story, Saul is still king. But his life's beginning to unravel. And it's beginning to unravel at every level, including personally. Now, if you look at verses 14, 15 of 1 Samuel 16, I am not even going to try and explain those. Do you know, sometimes you just got to leave mystery. Lots of people have tried to explain them. I just have no clue how to, if I'm honest. The only thing I can say with any integrity is that Saul is in a dark place and the only thing that helps him is music therapy. Fascinating. And so Saul tells his attendants, please go and find me a talented musician. And so one of the servants speaks up and says this, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's a brave man. He's a warrior. He speaks well. He's a fine looking man. And the Lord is with him. Now that is some resume. That is some CV. He's a skilled instrumentalist. He's a courageous man. He's a great fighter. He's articulate, articulate and he's handsome. Quite possibly what many men aspire to in our culture. But the key quality, the one that makes all the difference, the one that in today's image-based society would have got lost or overlooked is the final description and the characteristic. And the Lord is with him. Because that is what changes everything. That underpinning and fueling all that David could do, his abilities, his gifts, his strength and public persona, underpinning all of that was the presence of God in his life. And those words are actually a refrain in the whole David story. Time and time again you read, the Lord was with David. The Lord was with David. And the Lord was with David. And to know that, Do you know that this morning? Like, I mean, do you really know that? Because to know that must inspire confidence. But for others to observe it about your life is an incredible testimony. That when someone else is commenting on your life, they don't just remark on what you can do. They don't just remark on your accomplishments, your gifts and your abilities. But what they actually remark and note about you is this. The Lord's with that person. The Lord's with her. 
And David gets sent for. And he comes and he enters the king's service. And you actually read, although the NIV, I don't think, really does justice to this. Because the NIV kind of says he liked him a lot. But apparently it says that Saul loved David greatly. And you know, in the story of David, lots of people turn out to love him. But Saul was the first. And sure enough, whenever the darkness descended on Saul and David played, Saul found relief. And so chapter 16 closes. And then we come to one of the best known stories in the Bible. And even for people who don't know the Bible, even for people who have never read it, the phrase, the term, the words David and Goliath, they mean something. Those words, that phrase means something. And therefore what I want to do in the short time I've left is just give you five key lessons that spring out of this story. But let me just give you the details. The setting is this vast canyon. Some people reckon it could be anything up to half a mile wide. And on one slope an army is assembled ready for the fight. And on the other facing them stands their opponents hungry for a fight. When all of a sudden out of their ranks steps a monster of a man. If he is indeed a man. Could be ten feet tall. And he's kitted out in the best of gear. And as he walks forward, he lays down a challenge to the opposition. And it's a common tactic used at the time. And it involves a one-on-one representative scrap. And the stakes are high. The stakes are its last man standing. The two will fight to death. And the losing fighter's army must surrender and become subjects of the enemy. And when you're ten feet tall and built like a brick house, there aren't many people willing to step into the ring with you. And so, not surprisingly, no one volunteers. In fact, the army and the king are scared, witless, and so there's a stalemate. There's a complete standoff. And incidentally, Saul, as I said a moment ago, stood head and shoulders above everyone in Israel. So if there was anybody that was big enough to actually go and fight this giant, it should have been Saul. But there's no chance of that happening. And every morning the Philistine steps forward and he shouts abuse. And it happens 80 times. 80 times he comes out and shouts abuse at the opponents. Twice a day for 40 days. There's that significant time frame again. And three of David's brothers are part of the army that are facing this giant. And one day their dad decides he's going to send refreshments to the front line. And he decides that David is going to be the courier. And so off David sets, probably quite excited at the prospect of seeing some serious action. And he arrives to discover nothing's happening. Nothing. When all of a sudden outsteps the Philistine and everyone around him either freezes or runs. And David is puzzled and David says, what is going on? And he's told that, listen, if anybody will go and kill that gladiator who's voicing off, they'll receive a massive financial bonus. Plus they'll get the king's daughter in marriage. Now, unlike everybody else, it appears that David's not scared. And in fact, he's not only not scared, he gives it a bit of verbal himself. He actually says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine, which is a bit personal, that he should defy the armies of God? And off the one side, as David's eldest brother hears this, he loses it. He absolutely loses it. And he launches into an incredible assault on his youngest kid, brother. And he he abuses him for turning up in the first place. Why are you here? But 
then he attacks David's character. He says, you're conceited, David. You're conceited and you have a wicked heart. You're conceited, David, and you have a wicked heart. Fair play to David. He doesn't react. He simply heads off to speak to someone else. And word gets back to Saul about David's bravado and he sends for him. And the first thing that David says in Saul's presence is this. Listen, I'll fight him. I'll fight him. And the king laughs. But David doesn't back down. And David goes on to tell the king about his his fighting experience to date. And Saul thinks to himself, I've got nothing to lose. This has been going on for nearly six weeks. And so he says, okay, David, you've got permission to fight him. And incidentally, the Lord be with you. Which is is interesting. And Saul offers David his armor, but it's far too big for him. And so David takes it off. And he walks the center stage. And all he's armed with is a stick, a catapult, and five stones. And at this point, he could have cut the air with a knife. No one surely could believe what they're seeing. Where are David's three brothers at this point in time in the story? Why are they not grabbing him? Why are they not trying to knock sense into him? But they don't. They just let him walk. They just let him edge towards his destiny. And no one is more surprised than the Philistine. And with utter contempt, he threatens to rip David apart and feed his young flesh to the vultures and the wild coyotes. And then David speaks, which is brave in itself. And he says something along these lines. You are about to fight me with an impressive arsenal of weapons, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. And he doesn't stop there. He then adds that I'm going to strike you down, decapitate you, and I'm going to feed the carcasses of your army to the vultures and the coyotes that you've just mentioned a moment ago. And then, he says, everyone's going to know that this battle belongs to the Lord. It's amazing confidence in the face of such adversity. And the Philistine cannot believe what he's hearing, and he can't take it anymore, and so he lunges forward. He's waited 40 days to spill blood. The time's come. But as he advances, David reaches into his bag, takes out a soul stone, and sends it crashing through flesh and bone and into the giant's forehead. And he stumbles And he falls face first in the dirt. And David runs forward and he takes the giant sword and he finishes the killing process. And then, as promised, it says he beheads him. And those at ringside are all in a state of shock. And as the reality dawns that their hero has been brutally killed, the Philistine army panic and they turn and they run for their lives. And all of a sudden the Israelite army surge forward for the very first time and they give chase and they kill many And they return to plunder their camp. And meanwhile, David picks up the giant's head, his sword, his spear, his javelin, and he takes the trophies of his victory back to his tent. And it's a story over. And it is such a brilliant story. But what it does is it sets David up. But as far as Saul is concerned, it's this incident and his subsequent popularity and achievements that actually lead him to make a decision that he is going to eradicate David forever. But there's more about that tonight. Here's the five lessons. The first is this. When you're trying to live for God, oppositions can sometimes come from the most unlikely source. See, for David, 
The key opposition and the first opposition he faced that day came from his family. His oldest brother turned on him. Here was David wanting to just stand up for God. And yet in his pursuit of that, Eliab had to go at him. And you might be here this morning and able to relate to that. That as a Christian, you're doing your best to live out your faith. You're doing your best to live out the Christian life with integrity and commitment. And yet the person or the people who are making that most difficult for you are those who are closest to you. And that's a really hard place to be. That is a really tough place to be. The very first challenge that David faced that day was to deal with a relative who was annoyed, who was upset, and who was unsettled because he took his faith seriously. And because this young guy couldn't stand back while God was dishonored, and so he stood up for his faith, and yet someone from within his own family attacked him and said, you're conceited and you've got a wicked heart. And I don't know if there's anybody here, and at the moment... One of the biggest challenges you're facing is being a Christian at home. Second lesson is this. Don't go looking for giants, but please be ready when they show up. You know, David didn't leave the house that morning intent on discovering a massive obstacle in his life to overcome. He was simply getting on with living an obedient life. He just wanted to be obedient to his dad, and so he went. He just wanted to be obedient to his God. But that day, a giant stumbled across his path, and he had to deal with it. And we all know that hassle-free Christian living is a complete myth. And no matter how obedient we are, and sometimes I never can get my head quite round this, that sometimes people who are doing their best to be obedient to God face huge obstacles. And they intrude upon their lives. And it doesn't seem, humanly speaking, to make any sense whatsoever. But you know, when we are surrendered to God as David was, he'll give us the support, he'll give us the resources that we need to tackle those giants. Part of the problem is that sometimes we go looking for them. Or actually, to put it more accurately, we create Goliaths in our lives. Many of the messes that we, that I find myself in, have got nothing to do with God and everything to do with me. It's because of my bad choices. It's because of my poor decisions. It's because of my careless words, my blatant disobedience, that I end up facing huge hurdles. And yet God, in his grace, still can and often does bail us out. But whatever we do, don't go looking for giants. They will come. Don't go after them. Third thing, remember how God has been there with us and for us in the past because it's so easy to forget. Whenever David faced a present tough situation, he recalled God's influence in a past situation. Goliath wasn't David's first major trial. He had faced lions, he had fought bears, and he had overcome them. And again, I know there are many people here this morning and you are facing difficult challenges at the moment and you wonder, am I ever going to get through this? It's been going on for so long. It's difficult not only to face it, but even to wonder, will I ever get through it? Well, let me encourage you to pause and to think back 
to reflect on God's goodness to you in the past. God has brought you this far. God is not going to leave you. He's not going to abandon you. God has not promised, as I say, a giant free existence, but he does promise his constant, consistent, tangible presence. An engaging presence that provided and provides strength to tackle giants. Fourth lesson is the importance of immediate giant killing. Do you know one of the problems we often have in life is that we delay the fight? That we avoid certain situations and obstacles for as long as possible. And that's exactly what the Israelites did. For 40 days they just stared at this giant. And what happened? He didn't get any smaller. In fact, if anything, he became far more intimidating. And when we avoid dealing with our giants, they tend to grow in size and intensity. David's approach totally different. From day one of encountering Goliath, he's up and at him. And the lesson is this. Don't keep putting it off. Deal with things in your life that are real obstacles to you. Because if you don't, they may grow out of all proportion and even cast a huge shadow over your life. And the final thing is this. We must always fight giants in God's strength and never in our own. And this is where Saul and the Israelite army got it so badly wrong because they saw this as purely a fight between themselves and Goliath. And therefore it's no wonder they're left dismayed and terrified and think that there's no hope here. David, on the other hand, saw this as not only a, not a fight between him and Goliath, but about, against, but about Goliath versus God. And therefore, as he approached the giant, he wasn't relying on his own strength or the, fight, the fact that he had a stick or a catapult or a stone. He came against Goliath, it says, in the name of the Lord Almighty. And his hope and his trust was placed firmly in God. And therefore, four times before, during, and after this, it actually says that David's trust was in God. And that's something Gordon referred to earlier. Where is your trust this morning? Where is my trust? Saul and the Israelites thought, look how big that giant is. David looked at him and thought, look how big my God is. And no one backed David to win that day, but David didn't need anybody's backing. All David needed was God. And so his eyes were fixed firmly on him. And if God was for him, Who could be against him? And so there are five lessons. Opposition can sometimes come from the most unlikely of places. Don't go looking for giants, but be ready when they show up. Remember how God has been there with you and for you in the past. Learn the importance of immediate giant killing. And always fight them in God's strength, not your own. And each of us in 15, 20 minutes, half an hour, is going to walk out those doors. And we're going to re-enter, if you like, the battlefield. And I wonder, what are the giants you personally leave here to face this morning? Is it a difficult relationship? Is it a painful rejection? An overbearing temptation? A problem in work? A health scare? A crisis of confidence, low self-esteem, financial uncertainty, 
Or back to where we started, is it a preoccupation with your external image and appearance? Is that the giant that you fight? Giants take on many forms, and if one looms large in your life right now, then just in a moment's silence before I hand back to Gordon, let me invite you to just pray for yourself. To pray for yourself as you leave to do battle, and as you come against whatever that giant is, in the name of the Lord God. Almighty. Moment silence.